Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and I just wanted to start out by saying that if you haven't listened to our previous episode with Professor Deneen Brown, I would definitely suggest listening to that episode first because it provides such a great overview of family separation throughout American history and its relationship with slavery, and also because she describes briefly in that episode the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's part of the Smithsonian in DC, and she described how it's designed, why it's designed the way that it is, and you know, when I was living there, that was the number one thing that I'd recommend people to do if they were visiting. So you should definitely take the time to visit it if you ever have the opportunity. And today we have a genealogist from that museum, Hollis Gentry. And her story is just one of, I want to say like relentless, but that sounds bad. So maybe boundless curiosity. But yeah, she just has spent her whole life trying to understand more and more about where she comes from, where we all come from, and how family separations, reunions, and our general history can inform the way that we understand our own lives. So she actually kind of describes in the middle of this episode, like perfectly what we're trying to do. Um, So look out for that part. I think that the most interesting thing for me is just how when you learn something new about your genealogy or your ethnic makeup or history, or when you discover somebody's part of your family that you didn't know about before, like nothing has really changed in your life, you know, circumstantially or physically or anything. Like it's just knowledge that has come into your brain, but it changes drastically like how you understand your own life and how you have understood your own life so i think that hollis gentry and paul can describe this much better than i can but that's what you have to look forward to in this episode and before i turn it over to paul and hollis gentry i would just like to recommend to you episode 23 in our podcast it's one where paul speaks with Stephen Vito, who plays a similar role as hollis does at the u.s holocaust museum definitely check that out too maybe i've given too many recommendations but without further ado here's paul and hollis gentry I'm super honored and excited to be able to learn from and speak with Ms. Hollis Gentry, who serves as a genealogy specialist with the Smithsonian Libraries and Archives here in Washington, D.C., in the division of the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. Hollis, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, despite your busy schedule. Thank you for inviting me. One thing that I'm really interested in hearing about is your own connection with your family and your work in genealogy. But first, could you share a bit about your own family and your childhood growing up? Yes, I come from a family of five, two boys and a girl, and I am the middle child. And my family was very close-knit. We were of Southern origins. In other words, My father was born in Kentucky. My mother was born in Virginia. And that influenced, I think, part of our lifestyle, although we lived everywhere almost but there. I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland. My father was a science school teacher. He taught in middle school in Washington, D.C. And my mother was a counselor of young children and teenagers who were being monitored by the juvenile justice system. So my parents were civil servants. One was you know, involved in educating and teaching kids in the inner city of Washington, D.C., and my mother was working in Maryland counseling youth. So at home, our discussions were typically focused around teaching and learning. My parents were very attentive to our learning processes, and they exposed us to a lot of culture. 
as we were kids growing up and my parents took us to different places, they would uh, focus on us attending or going to different ethnic communities and neighborhoods and things like that. So although our family was African-American, they exposed us to people from all over the globe. And I thought I was very fortunate in that regard as I got older. I grew up with this consciousness of people coming from all sorts of places. And my mother was a fantastic storyteller. You know, she's a counselor. She's accustomed to interviewing people and getting stories out of people. And she just had this knack for interacting with people. Even though she was somewhat of an introvert, there was this part of her, the interviewer, that she could pull stories out of people. And I used to observe this growing up and see how my mother could walk into a room of complete strangers and connect with someone and not just simply connect with them, but sort of pull a story out of them, a narrative. And because my mother was a storyteller, she also had a tremendous interest in our own family's history. And so I learned from her, I heard from her the earliest of stories about my ancestors. And by virtue of the fact that her great-grandmother lived from 1858 to about 1956, she was able to extract a lot of stories from her. And so I grew up hearing stories about my mother as a child, as a teenager, and as a young adult um, in connection with different parts of our family's history. And that is really what spurred an interest in me to begin to trace my own family's history. Now, in terms of my dad, We lived on the East Coast primarily. My father's family was from Kentucky. My mother's family was from Virginia. We were closer to my mother's family because they lived primarily on the East Coast in Virginia and Maryland and New York. But we were not very close to my father's side of the family just because of the distance. And there were stories that I heard in my childhood that I just absorbed. And it wasn't until I learned about the field of genealogy, it wasn't until I learned how to begin to research genealogy that I began to ask more questions. I started when I was 13. And by virtue of the fact that we lived in close proximity to Washington, D.C., we had access to the local libraries out in the county, out in the suburbs. And then these major research institutions in Washington, D.C., there is uh, the concept of early exposure to certain environments that can help to guide a young person in a certain direction. And I reflect upon my access to libraries and research institutions as uh, being an important factor and influence in my ability to develop an interest in genealogy and to pursue it until the point that I became a professional in that field. In terms of looking at my work at the Smithsonian, that was a natural progression. I mentioned uh, having access to libraries as an important influence in my life. When I was a child, I remember, especially on weekends, aside from the cultural outings that my family had, we visited the library quite a bit. My parents had an extensive library collection at home, and it wasn't until I got older that I began to understand that they had an extensive collection of what was published by then on African-American history 
my father's uh, office was filled with science books and education books and things like that. And it was sort of a hands-off, hands-on kind of environment where, you know, we were always sneaking in to access his supply, his teaching supplies and things. <laughs> and awesome. we spent a lot of time in the library. And as a kid, I remember just going to the library and finding information. And I just had this belief that whatever I wanted to learn, I could eventually find a book in the library that would explain it. The local library was next door to my high school. And I used to go there after school to do my homework. I'd call my mom and tell her that's where I was going to be. I got started when I was 13 with genealogy. Then I learned that I needed to learn about history and learn about African-American history and learn about geography. After school, I was going to do genealogy after I did, after I completed my homework. And I remember my mother telling me a story about a great uncle who worked on a steamboat that traveled from Virginia up to New York. And he worked in the dining hall. And he was the famous person in the family at the time. This is someone who was born in the 1880s, who lived until about the 1940s. His name was uh, Willie Harris. And she told me that some part of his history was recorded in a book, a history of this company. He, walked, he worked for the Baltimore Steam Packet Company, which was a major form of transportation between Virginia and New York City during the time when steamboats were the popular domestic uh, form of travel in, in, on the East Coast. So she told me these stories and I began to do research and I learned about interlibrary loan. I learned about the value of gaining access to libraries globally. And so once I learned that I could borrow books from other libraries, I just sort of I don't even know how to describe it, but I, I, I became keenly interested in accessing information. And I found a copy of a history of the Steamboat Company. And in that history, they identified the employees, which is a little bit unusual for the history of a company. And there on some of the pages, I saw a reference to Uncle Willie, and then it identified his father. And it said between the two of them, they had been employed with this company for more than 40 some years. What that discovery did for me, and I can remember the moment where it's like not just one light bulb, but a bunch of light bulbs went off in my head. And I'm a teenager, you know, at the time. And I, and I thought, wow, if I just look long enough and hard enough in books and history and whatever, I may be able to find more information about my family. And I was also excited because my mother had told me these stories. I'd heard my family talk about this Uncle Willie since I was young, and it immediately helped me connect the past with the present. And also, I was proud of the fact that I heard this oral history, and I found a way to document it, to prove that it was true. I think a year or so later was when uh, Alex Haley's book was published, and there was a lot of focus on African Americans tracing their ancestry and making this connection to the past. And so at that moment, I think for me, it solidified something in my mind and actually the course of my life that I was going to spend a lot of time searching for proof of these family stories. And that's really how I got started. 
the library was the institution, the place where I was verifying information. And I graduated from just uh, simply looking for evidence at public libraries to traveling with my mother to university libraries, to the state archives, and to the National Archives. So I had this influence early in my life, and I also gained access to these research institutions at a very young age. And by the time I graduated from high school, I had already sort of graduated also into the early steps of tracing my ancestry. Whereas my peers were going to the beach and having fun during spring break, I was able to, uh, my parents gave me permission to travel from the suburbs into Washington, D.C. to conduct research at the National Archives, at the Library of Congress, at the Martin Luther King Library in Washington, D.C. The trajectory of my life, I didn't know at the time I was going to end up here, but the groundwork was laid there. That foundation was laid when I was a teenager. That was some dedication, especially at a yeah. young age. And, and in my mind, you know, I, I started noticing when I went to the, the Library of Congress that most of the people who were around me were older, you know, silver-haired or white-haired. And so it dawned on me that a lot of people who were conducting genealogy were older, retired, you know. And I said to myself, if I start now and I'm a teenager, by the time I'm old enough, I'm in that age group, I'll be ahead of the game with my peers. And if it takes a long time, because, you know, most of the people at that point when I was doing research were telling me how difficult it was, it was for an African-American to trace their ancestry. And I thought to myself, okay, so this is going to be a challenge. But if I put the time and effort, you know, behind it, then perhaps by the time I'm in my 60s, I'll be ahead of the game or I'll be somewhere better off than I would be if I was just starting at that age. Back then, if you can imagine a teenager going to a place like the National Archives, and they have been preserving the nation's federal records since the 1930s. And so they've got millions of documents, probably billions by now. As I developed skills and I learned more about genealogy, I was sort of in the genealogy mecca of the time, you know, Washington, D.C., the um, Library of Congress is the largest library complex in the world. And so here I was researching at, you know, the central government with all these major research institutions. And by virtue of it being this national resource, I also met the serious researchers, scholars, and that helped me to develop and teach myself research skills. And so the library figured very prominently in my mind in, in terms of a place to learn how to conduct research. And I thought also to myself that the smartest thing for me to do would be to find a way to get a job in a library. And by virtue of being a staff member, I would have access. And it didn't matter what kind of library I worked in. As long as I was close to the data and the information, that's what mattered. And so I used to call myself a salaried patron. Um, I've worked in libraries, different types of libraries, public uh, special libraries, academic uh, law libraries for about 25 years. And all along, I saw that the salary that I was earning 
as the means of funding my research on my family history. Wow. I just have to say, it's almost like all of these pieces from your childhood, whether it was your father's library and these books or visiting archives in the DC area, they all fit into this puzzle. And you were, it was really your calling um, to yeah, be in this yeah. position where you are today. Yes. And I, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about discovering your own ancestry. It's clear to me you had this interest from very young age, from at least when you were 13, uh, this interest in genealogy. But I, I'm just wondering, where does um, discovering this uh, story about your great-great-grandmother, where does that fit into the rest of your work? Another way of asking that is, was that the first thing that you focused on seeking out? Or was it later on after you had developed more research skills and methodologies? My full name is Hollis Lucretia Gentry. Very unusual name. Hollis is typically thought of by people who have never met any person or seen anyone uh, named Hollis. For some reason, they think it's a male name. Then Lucretia was an odd name. And my mother told me that I was named after this ancestor. Her name was Lucretia Ann Mayhew Appleby Yule Sumner. And she was uh, my great-grandmother's mother. And the reason why she stood out was uh, we had a story that we had a Native American or a person of Native American ancestry in the family. And I was named after her. She was a long-lived relative of the matriarch of the family. And so this connected me to the past in a very unusual way. And I also learned that when she was born, there's a story that there was an abolitionist who was very popular at the time, Lucretia Mott. Lucretia Mott was a Quaker. She was a member of the Friends Society, and she was involved in uh, the abolition of slavery. And so when I talked about visiting the library as a teenager, I spent some time researching her life to determine whether or not the story was true. And the story was that, that when Grandma Sumner was born, the next door neighbor or Lucretia Mott was visiting the area. And so she was named after this abolitionist. And around that same time, I had, you know, been studying American history in school, and there was some coverage of abolition and slavery. And so in my mind, although we were being taught that, you know, African Americans were enslaved and they were poor and they were destitute and all these negative things, what stood out for me was someone in my family, she's connected to this great historical figure. And it put me and my family in a different light, in a different context than the narrative that I was being taught at school. And that laid a sort of like a foundation for me to look at history and then to challenge it or to try to find the truth in whatever narrative that I was looking at. Because this ancestor identified as being Native American or from or connected to a specific Native American tribe, in my mind, everything about us, about our family that was different, uh, somehow was connected to <laughs> this other ancestry. And so I spent time not only looking for my African-American ancestry, but this Native American ancestry. And I spent an inordinate amount of time looking for evidence of her background and her ancestry. 
And the other thing that stood out was she's from New York. She was born in New York. She lived in New York until my third great grandfather uh, on one of his naval tours ended up in New York and they met. She married him and moved to the South and established a Southern branch of the family. I think I read that later on, you were able to take a DNA test through Ancestry, and or maybe it was a relative of yours that took the test. You were able to match with another family member, but would you be able to share a bit about that process and how you felt when rediscovering, or I guess discovering for the first time, these long-lost relatives? My grandma Sumner married Grandpa... Mills. So Mills Sumner was born enslaved. Grandma Sumner, Lucretia, uh, was born free. And she was descended from the Shinnecock tribe of Long Island, New York. And I knew, I learned the story of Grandpa Sumner's mother. Her name was Rachel Hodges, and we called her Grandma Hodges. When I was about 16, I got my driver's license. And so my mother didn't drive. But once I obtained a driver's license, I used to drive her all over the place. So we started visiting relatives more. Um, On Sundays after church, we would visit some of these elderly relatives who could not attend church. And in the course of doing that, we, you know, they would share stories. My mother had a phenomenal recall. So she would start interviewing relatives about ancestors. And on this one particular trip, this ancestor lived in Annapolis, Maryland. She was the fourth wife of one of Grandpa Mills's children. And we were talking and my mother kept asking her questions. And she said, you know, hold on, wait a minute. She went somewhere in the house and came out with a box full of photographs. And in that box was this photograph of Grandma Hodges, who was born enslaved. And she told us the story that Grandpa Sumner was separated from his mother, Grandma Rachel Hodges, as a child while he was enslaved. And Grandma Hodges was sold somewhere south, separated from the family. And when he came of age, he joined the Navy. And while he was on his naval tours, whenever he went into any southern port south of Portsmouth, Virginia, which is where the family was based, he searched for his mother. And he eventually found her. And I didn't, the family uh, history didn't, or the oral history did not say where he searched specifically or where he found her. But all I know is that he found her. And when he found her, she had actually remarried and had another family. But he brought her back to Virginia. We didn't have any details about the family who may have been left in this other southern state. And uh, she lived until she died amongst her children. You know, he brought her back to Virginia. The family was reunited. This was a major reunification of, you know, what had been this family that was split during slavery. I didn't have any of the details of, you know, what precipitated that separation, the manner of it, the exact timing or anything. And all I had was the photograph of Grandma Hodges, Grandpa Sumner, and this uh, relative also gave us a box full of photographs that also included the enlistment papers, the rendezvous reports of Grandpa Sumner as he enlisted in the Navy each year and as he was released from service. So it provided a few details, but nothing 
that told us about the story of, of Grandma Hodges. And so I searched for years. It took me 25 years to be able to find a total of 25 years to have the story, to research part of the background, to anchor the family in documents, the federal census, and we had the personal family papers, and we had the family Bible that recorded Grandpa Sumner's marriage and, you know, the subsequent generations leading to us, but not the details of the story. And so I've been searching since I was about 17 years old for the details of how the family was separated and how they came to be reunited. And fast forward that to about the 19, late 1980s, I was at the National Archives learning about the different federal sources that were available for research on African-Americans. And there I discovered there was a group of records called the Freedmen's Bureau Records. These were created by a federal agency that was created after slavery ended, after the total emancipation, after slavery, the Constitution was amended to prevent slavery from being legally practiced in this country. And this is around the ratification of the 13th Amendment in December of, I think it's 1865. So these records were created at this moment when people are beginning to emerge from the period of enslavement to freedom. And I had time, I had access, and I said to myself, I don't care how long it takes, I'm going to search through these records until I find my family. And I searched and searched, and I did find them in the records. So what I found was, after emancipation, and there was the head of the family, who was Mill Sumner Sr. He was a house carpenter and enlisted him with his children or the children that were, I guess, young enough or, you know, still minors who were living with him. From there, about almost a decade later, the Mormon church under the auspices of their nonprofit genealogy agency, which is uh, Family Search, they microfilmed records of Another entity related to the Freedmen's Bureau records, it was the Freedmen's Savings Bank. And they were searching for descendants of some of these bank account holders. The bank was formed as a means of safeguarding the earnings of African Americans who had recently emerged from slavery. Part of the impetus for this was to help preserve the pay that African American veterans or soldiers were receiving to safeguard it. You know, they're out in the, they're, they were still fighting the Civil War when the Freedmen's Savings Bank was founded. And so you had all of these African-American soldiers who were finally getting their bounty payments. I was part of the descendant community and they gave me a CD that they created from these records. They had indexed the records and they wanted me to just test it out and and so by then, I had already found some other relatives in these records. And I said, oh, let me look at every other name, any name that I'm researching. And there I found my ancestor, Grandma uh, Hodges, was wow. mentioned in a Freedmen's Bank record in Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, this is like, you know, major light bulbs going off here. It's like, oh, my goodness, I found them. It showed her. 
it mentioned Grandpa Sumner's father, and then it identified all of his siblings, siblings I knew nothing about. I didn't even know he had siblings. And it also identified a young brother, and he was actually the person that the account was created for. So he's 11 years old, and it showed that he was born in Virginia. So that helped me to add you know, some details to the timeline to say, oh, well, if he's born in Virginia and they ended up in Atlanta, I at least know that Grandma Hodges was part of the family or still in the family you know, back in the 1850s. So I knew that that was a, a significant clue from which to work back. I haven't found the answer yet, you know, what happened or what caused her to be uh, sold to the South or if she was actually auctioned or if she was inherited by someone who relocated to Atlanta. I don't know. But the key part is the child for whom that bank account was um, created, his name was uh, William Samuel Sumner. I had never heard of him. I wondered from that point and subsequently with my research, what happened to him? I didn't know anything about whether he stayed in Atlanta or returned to Virginia. You know, it's highly likely that he did. He wasn't part of the oral history. And so fast forward to some years later, as I continued to do the research, I found the name of her second husband, who she united with, you know, in slavery. It wasn't a legal marriage. Slave marriages weren't legal. So I found information about him. And I discovered that she also had a, a daughter with this second husband. I don't know what happened to her, but I, I sort of had this sense that William Samuel Sumner survived. And it was always in the back of my mind, you know, when I get the chance, I'll pursue it further. Fast forwarded to two years ago, I convinced one of my aunts to take a DNA test. I had already taken a DNA test with Ancestry.com. And I wasn't getting any of the kinds of DNA results that I had expected, or actually that I desired. I started attending a lot of workshops with genetic genealogists. There's an international society of geneticists and genealogists and historians and other kinds of health professionals who are looking at the DNA and who are tracing the history of humanity through genetics. Uh, they formed this international organization to collaborate on finding ways to make, you know, DNA information useful to different branches of research. And so part of that process involves being able to connect and trace ancestry. So I started attending those workshops to figure out what to do with my DNA information. I got one aunt to test. And I, my parents and brothers are all deceased. And my brother, my youngest brother was living uh, and I was able to get him to take a DNA test before he died. And so I discovered that he had very different results in terms of matching with other people than I did. And though we did find some relatives in common, I was able to identify through the other cousins who I was aware of, I could trace their ancestry. I, you know, I got the DNA results and I said, okay, I know where they fit on my large family tree. My family tree consists of about 1,500 uh, relatives 
that span about nine, almost nine generations. I have a, a very big family tree. Well, <laughs> actually, compared to other parts of America, it's it's tiny. It's it's not as big as it sounds. There's some people who have a hundred thousand people on their family tree that you know they've been able to to connect further back. But for a person who descends from uh, enslaved people and some who weren't enslaved, it's yeah, it's it's a large, it's somewhat large. So I find these matches. My brother's DNA sort of helps, but doesn't. It causes more questions. And then when my aunt took the test, by that time, I'd gone through the frustration and learning how to begin to interpret these results. And so I was a little bit more uh, skilled. And I just started digging in the records. I'm talking about for six months straight, every single day, I'm, I'm looking through thousands, several thousand DNA matches, and they don't have any names that make any sense to me. And so I had to develop these different strategies for trying to make sense out of them. And then I was using the Ancestry.com uh, service. And you've probably seen, or a lot of people have seen these advertisements on TV about Ancestry and how they have, you know, perhaps a billion or so records and they can help you connect with your ancestry. And they show these examples of these people who've gone to the, you know, connected to the motherland or fatherland and, or they've discovered their, uh, the percentages of their identity, their ethnicity and what have you. So I, you know, I bought into that, that idea and took the test. I had some specific goals. I wanted to see where in Africa my ancestors were coming, you know, they came from. I also wanted to determine if I could find any connection to the Native American ancestry. And then the other part was to sort of face the genetic reality of slavery or enslavement of my ancestors. My admixture was showing I was 65% African or West African of West African descent. And it wasn't just one particular nation or one particular place of origin, but it was primarily my maternal line traced back to almost the African origin or African Eve, which is somewhere in Central Africa, somewhere in the area where they speculate Homo sapiens originated, the Congo. This is, this is what the test results provided. And then 34% of my ancestry came from Europe. And then I had this little, this one little percentage of Native American ancestry. So for me, you know, looking at myself, looking at my family, we span the color range from very fair to very dark complected. So we have relatives who don't look like they're African Americans to those who there's no doubt, whatever, there's some African ancestry. And looking at my results, I had to come to terms with the reality of what this was saying about my own ancestry. Because mind you, of all of those thousand, you know, thousand or so people on my tree, all of them are listed as African American. Yet here my DNA results are saying 30 some percent of my ancestry is not African. Knowing the reality of the history of that and knowing that I could trace back to my great great grandparents. And in some instances, my third great grandparents, I looked at the results. It just, it hit me. And, and I, was, I was really saddened for a while because the 
Junctures where I couldn't trace my ancestry anymore were the same junctures with my DNA where the predominant number of DNA cousins, people who shared the same DNA with me, were not of African ancestry. In other words, so many generations back, I start having an overwhelming number of DNA, living DNA cousins who are white, and I have no clue whatsoever how we're connected. And so for several months, I really, I, I didn't know how to handle that because I had spent all these years, we're talking 20, almost 30 years of my life tracing this difficult part. Yeah, I was able to deal with the history of slavery. It went through stages, but I come to terms with the reality of some of the fact that some of my ancestors had been enslaved and some of them haven't. And I was able to document how those who gained their freedom, how they gained it before and uh, during or as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment uh, ratification. So I I had dealt with all these difficult things, but I had not dealt with this other ancestry. I also came to understand that these DNA results were telling me, or there were evidence of a story that I couldn't flesh out, didn't have any names. The connections I have are all over the globe. With my DNA, my DNA results and my mother and my aunt and my brother the DNA cousins that are showing up are all over the globe. I mean, even in Iran, you know, people born in Iran, Turkey, China, the Philippines, um, the Caribbean, Europe, you know, Russia. And so I remember thinking back to Michael Jackson's song, We Are the World. And so for a while there, to pull myself out of the negative, sad feelings. I started singing, I am the world, you know, and (laughs) and that used to kind of like help me. The remix. Uh, Yeah. But then it also helped me to look at the world differently. And prior to that, you know, I'd just been this African-American with some other kind of ancestry. And up until then, the only other I was sort of working with was Native American. And so I had to open up the door to accept this other identity as part of my identity. But it wasn't just European. It was, you know, it's like, oh, okay, they're all over the place. And so you know, I'm predominantly African. There's some part that's European. And so now I've got a little, you know, snippet of some kind of Asian ancestry. And if you look at it and take, you know, steps back, and then if actually you read the, some of the information that's coming out of the genetic world, we're all related. And it's just a matter of when and where your ancestors migrated and you know, settled for a bit and migrated again and and mixed with other people and whatever. The divisions that we're walking around with really don't, I mean, they matter for our social interaction. We have the ability to broaden our perspectives and we can focus on the history, the experiences that we have that might color our narrative differently. But for me, because I've been researching for so long, And because I've worked professionally in this area, in other words, I've looked at other people's ancestry as as part of my work, I've come to see the commonalities. We all have families. We all have those uh, origin stories. We all have colorful relatives. We all have successful, wealthy relatives. We have poor relatives. We have struggling relatives. We have 
you know, all of us, if you really dig into our backgrounds, if you are able to trace the ancestry, you'll find similar themes. They may be colored by the environment, the nation, the culture, the identity of the individual or the family or the community or nation that they're living in. But if you strip away all of that, you find the commonalities through time. And so once I reached that point, then it helped me to morph into this other kind of genealogist to look for the commonalities first and to try to pull out the nuggets of a story that I think are most useful and to also find a way to connect with everybody. So it's, it's like with your, your, your podcast, you're looking for stories of families reuniting or looking for, you know, how did people become what they are? You know, where does that identity form from? And part of that identity is formed from these stories of separation and reunion. And I love uh, listening to others tell stories about their families or reading about it. In my work, I probably have become overzealous at times in sharing information, but I also take the time to listen to others. Sometimes when I'm in the presence of complete strangers, you know, let's say we're waiting in line at at the Motor Vehicles Administration and somehow or another we strike up, you know, a conversation about whatever. I pick up from what I recall of my mother and finding a way to strike up a conversation to find the commonalities with somebody. Inevitably, there will be a story about a family member immediately. My mom, my dad, my sister, my cousin. And if not that, it's going to be a coworker or a friend. Could be the the story about uh, the challenges of getting a driver's license or, yeah, well, my brother came here. And and so you, you find that in life, family figures very prominently. And there are all so- sorts of stories that we have about our relatives, about our family that shape how we see the world and how we interact with the world. And genealogy is, you know, literally the way to make those connections, to trace the connections. Family history is a little bit broader. That uh, involves looking at the genealogy, but the genealogy in the context of your culture, your community, your beliefs, and everything. And then you can take the family history to broaden it to the community history, a regional history, and a national history. And then when you get to the level of the international part, you know, it opens the doors for people seeing themselves in different contexts. The world is or has become a lot smaller because of that, the the fact that people are able to migrate. I sometimes have a different perspective on what it means to be a part of a family and what the stories that I have inherited and retained and shared with other relatives and other people. I look at it as a way of finding our commonalities. It also gives me hope that by sharing these stories that I will inspire somebody else to do the same. And also in that sharing that I will learn something else about another family that will help me to become a better researcher or will help me find a different way of reflecting upon my own family history, my own ancestry. Wow. I, I am honestly blown away. And it seems like listening to you reflect on this experience, this really marathon of an experience, more than two decades of 
trying to find this ancestry, the commonalities that you see that I am the world. It reminded me of what you were sharing at the beginning of being exposed to different cultures when you were growing up. Mm-hmm. So it's almost coming full circle in that way. I'm so glad that you were able to, with the help of your late brother and, and your aunt, take the ancestry test. Um, yes. And just one thing that I wanted to ask about that story is, I think for me, it's one thing to discover the story of my ancestors, which is mm-hmm. very significant in itself. But I think it's another thing to discover their descendants, you know, a long lost cousin who is alive today. Yes. So I think I read that you were able to find a descendant of your, your great grandfather, William Samuel Sumner. Yes. And I just wanted to ask what it was. I don't know uh, if you were able to ever connect with him or you know, how much you know about him, but just what it was like. Uh, seeing his photo and seeing any resemblance and, and, you know, just seeing that there is somebody alive today who shares that, that lineage um, that you do. Yes. Yes. Well, and I went off on a tangent and sort of answering uh, your question previously, but taking the story of Grandma Hodges and Grandpa Sumner, William Sumner being Grandpa Sumner's brother and Grandma Hodges's son, Uh, We were always sort of wondering about Hodges as the last name, and I couldn't find him initially. I didn't know if he was a Hodges or a Sumner or her maiden name, according to that Freedman's Bank record, was Bird, B-Y-R-D. And she married, and of course now it's slipping my mind, her husband's name was different than anything. You know, she didn't acquire his name in, when, when she returned to Virginia, she used Hodges or Sumner as a, as a surname. And I knew that this William Samuel Sumner, I knew he was using Sumner as a name as a child right after enslavement, but I wasn't sure if into adulthood he did. So uh, fast forward to the DNA results. I was digging through the results for my aunt and I started just focusing on either the surname or on the location, Portsmouth as a a point of reference, because that's where the family was located. My mother's family has been in that area for at least five generations that I can document. It was probably two or three in the morning, which is when I'm usually doing this kind of research. I saw this family tree and I said, I don't know. The family tree was more contemporary. The end of my tree ended with, you know, Samuel Sumner as an 11-year-old child. So I didn't have the connection, tracing him to contemporary generations. And this one family tree that I found had the more contemporary generations up to the present. And so as luck would have it, the distant cousin was actively looking through his DNA results. And this is about a month after my aunt's DNA results were posted. So I was the manager of her DNA test results so all of the email coming was coming actually to me rather than to her. And he reached out and said, I think I'm related to you. At the time when I was just looking at my DNA results, he and I didn't have any kind of shared DNA. The way to use the ancestry tests is, is to have the DNA results match with someone and then look at their family tree to try and find the common ancestor. That's the straightforward way. Or 
the approach that I had been using was look in their results and see who they're related to in common and try and narrow it down to a place and then examine the, the family tree to see if you can trace the family to find the connection. I was doing it the hard way. So when he contacted me, I had no results that matched his. But when my aunt's results came, I dug deeper into the generations. There he was, he popped up. And so I had the confirmation that we had this DNA connection. And then I was able to go back and examine his family tree further. And that is when I found a distant cousin in common who was living in my grandparents' lifetime, who used to visit my family. And so that was a second bit of evidence where I found a name that I knew of that I could document the connection. And he had that same individual in his tree. And that's sort of loosely called or referred to as triangulation. Instead of just simply sharing the bit of the story that I had based on my results and my research, I was able to return, you know, an additional email to say, hey, you're showing up as a DNA cousin of my aunt. She's my mother's sister. And I learned that he lived in New York. And so I'm here in Washington, D.C. And we make the discovery during COVID. So it's not like we can get up and say, hey, let's have a a mini reunion, you know. So, but you've got social media, you know, we exchange photos. And his ancestry is far more mixed than mine. On his mother's side, there are more individuals from the Caribbean. He's part uh, Latino and just a whole bunch of other things. But considering everything that he is, looking at his facial features, he inherited the facial features of Mill Sumner and Grandma Hodges, you know. And so that was the additional confirmation that this was a distant relative. In fact, he, he, um, texted me yesterday. We, we stay in touch with each other, though we still haven't met. Everything that I've been through in all these years, all these decades was well worth the effort, well worth the sacrifice, well worth the investment, because I was finally able to answer the question of what happened to him. And it was something as simple as he dropped William as his first name. I mean, it was reversed. It, instead of it being William Samuel, it was Samuel William. And so in some records, he was just simply Samuel. In some records, he was just simply William. So the evidence that I needed to connect him, researching on my own without the evidence that his other descendants had, the big challenge for me was in matching up the names through time to see where he ended up. For that, just with the experience, I don't know, it sort of solidified something for me It was almost like there was this uh, multi-generational reunion of a sort. You know, my great-great-grandfather, you know, reunited with his mother and brought her back into the fold of the family where she lived until she died. And she's buried in Portsmouth, Virginia. She's buried in a cemetery where other relatives are. There are moments when I try to, I look at her photograph and I try to imagine, you know, what her life experience was. We did not inherit the oral history of what enslavement was like for her. I see through that reunion, there have been branches of our family that have held family reunions. The great-great-grandfather, Mill Sumner, because he was in the Navy, he traveled quite a bit. He settled in Annapolis, Maryland. And he and the great-grandmother, Lucretia, who I'm named after, when they died, they were buried at the Naval Academy. 
before 9-11, my mom and I used to go out to the Naval Academy every Memorial Day and lay flowers there on their graves. And I was thinking about, in a sense, there's a reunion there with the branch of the family that settled in Annapolis, Maryland. And we've had physical family reunions in the past. And so fast forward now, I've had a virtual reunion as a result of technology. I just keep seeing reunion of, you know, the family on different levels. It makes me feel good going forward as I assist others with their research. I have personal experiences. I've had challenges to overcome. I've had to learn a lot in the process. And I take that experience and it helps me to have a certain amount of patience and empathy. Um, It gives me passion to continue with my work when some days I'm like really exhausted and I can remind myself that I have lots of experiences to help me relate to other researchers, to help guide them in their next step. And I take all of this experience to help encourage others to pursue their research and to tell them don't give up. I mean, I know a lot of people don't want to when they first start in any endeavor. They don't want to think in terms of spending 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their lives pursuing, uh, you know, (laughs) the answer (laughs) one question. But for me, it became a way of life. And now I'm in a position where I can help point people to resources with my work at the Smithsonian. I also am assisting others on the museum staff, the curatorial staff, when they are developing exhibitions, when they need background information, biographical information on these historical figures. They have a, I'll say, first-tier staff of researchers who assist the curatorial staff. And then when they're stumped and they can't get to certain types of resources, then they turn to me to dig deeper. I work on or function in three capacities with the museum. I serve as an additional layer of research with the curatorial staff and then with the Smithsonian staff at large when they have questions, I'd say, of a biographical nature, you know, the parents of someone, birth, marriage, death date. When we acquire collections, we sometimes have individuals who just send us items without going through the formal process of um, connecting with curators to know whether or not they actually want some of these items. And sometimes we have to return them. We have no information on the donor, the potential donor. And sometimes they turn to me to use my genealogical skills to find a living descendant if that person is deceased. I mean, a part of what I do is forensic genealogy, which is similar to what lawyers do when they're looking for heirs of an estate, when someone dies without a will or they die with a will and they don't know who the living heirs are. So I do a little bit of that. My personal experience helped prepare me for providing this kind of service. And then lastly, I provide reference assistance to the larger public when they're looking for answers to questions. Uh, They need a bit of help with their genealogy. I am unable to do or conduct personal research for them because it's just me working in this capacity. But my goal is to at least point them in the right direction. Uh, give them one resource or an institution to connect with. And then the, the other capacity in which I serve is I work with the media when they are researching the history of something, 
typically it's going to be a historical event and they want to find some background resources. Typically, it's of a genealogical nature. So they're looking for descendants, you know, members of the descendant community. Uh, most recently, there has been some attention uh, paid to the Tulsa massacre. And one of our staff members, John Franklin, was actually uh, very closely connected. His, his grandfather was one of the attorneys who represented the survivors just immediately after the massacre. And so, you know, sometimes our museum has these very unique connections, either via our, our staff, our collection items, or our connections, you know, the networks and the historical and cultural institution network, or some of our staff members have unique levels of interest and expertise. And the wonderful thing about my job is that there's always something new, something different to explore, different perspective of history. From the perspective of the African-American experience, and it's not just solely focused on African-Americans, it's the African-American perspective and its place within the broader culture, which is so very different than just saying simply African-American history. So, for example, we could be exploring, you know, the African-American presence anywhere else in the world. And then you're tying it immediately into the history of some other country or some other place, some other culture. And when you do that, again, you're not looking for separations. You're looking for connections and commonalities. And it's what makes working at the museum, it makes it rewarding because I get to help people as they're exploring their own identity, their own history, or the history and identity of others. I can help guide them to find their answers. I can be the person to encourage them that I didn't have when I first started out. I was discouraged throughout the process that it was going to be so challenging. But in the work that I'm conducting now, I can encourage you know researchers to say, hey, don't let this point in your process discourage you. You just need to keep looking. So that's my, that's my mission in life. I, uh, I don't think I can express, there are a lot of light bulbs, I think, that went off and about when you were speaking about the sense of intergenerational reunion, mm -hmm. you discovered this cousin, and I really do hope you can meet with him in person one day uh, after the pandemic. The last thing that I wanted to ask is that, as you said, it's very discouraging at times. I suppose, especially for the African-American community, when there are just a dearth of uh, records. Most of us, I think myself included, our listeners who are from the younger generation in our 20s and some even younger, you know, it seems very daunting to go through this process, even a DNA test of going to find our family roots. Would you be able to share any, any advice or suggestions for people who are interested in learning more and getting started to discover these roots uh, and, and getting involved with using genealogy to find their roots and heritage, but don't really know where to begin because it seems so daunting? Yes. Uh, before I go further, I, I have to do the shameless plug. <laughs> and I say this, uh, yes, the Smithsonian, <laughs> the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, and the Smithsonian's Transcription Center 
we have uh, sponsored a Freedmen's Bureau transcription project. And this was designed to assist African-American researchers who were, you know, looking for evidence of their family in the years immediately after slavery. Uh, I mentioned the Freedmen's Bureau records before. It was a department within the national government that operated from 1865 to 1872. This is the Reconstruction era. This is post-emancipation. The decades when African-Americans emerged from anonymity to being named in federal sources, to being named in local state and history sources, and the records that one traditionally consults for genealogical research. So we partnered with the Smithsonian Transcription Center as a platform to take the digitized images of the Freedmen's Bureau records and transcribe them so they're searchable, free of charge, and you know, globally to anyone. There is a total of several million, almost two million images that we're transcribing. We launched the project uh, around the opening of the museum. It's been going on since 2015. And we partnered with the Family Search, that's another large genealogical uh, nonprofit organization. They're the ones who took the microfilmed records of the Freedmen's Bureau and digitized them. And they ran a project where they were creating a name index to those records. These records are recording American history just after the Civil War. This is the period when, after the nation had been torn apart, when it starts to reunite. So this isn't only dealing with African-American families, it's dealing with any American families that were living in the United States at that time. Uh, Although the records were focused on uh, people who were formerly enslaved, it touches just every aspect of American life at that time. And so it's on our Smithsonian Transcription Center website, and it's under the title of the Freedmen's Bureau Project. So if anyone is interested in researching that period of American history, they can go and volunteer and learn how to transcribe the records. That will put you in nearly direct contact with the evidence or the records of the past. So this is American history from the ground up, this initiative. The takeaways from this whole process, how to begin, we, the genealogical approach is to start with what you know and work towards the unknown past. That involves turning to your family to ask them questions about your origins, your family history. And especially with the younger generation, you have all kinds of devices that you can use to record, to take photographs of things. If you can get your relatives to sit down for a video interview. Ask them questions about who they are, their name. Uh, Is there a story connected to it? Was the place of birth significant or the date of birth? Did it signify anything? Were there any stories about how they were born? I think many of us have stories about that. Ask about relatives. Ask about just simple experiences. What was it like being a child or Uh, Where did you grow up? Or if you're married, or where did you go to school? Or what kinds of celebrations, what kind of holidays did did you share or experience with your family or whatever? Think about your own life and try to connect with them in terms of the past and their experience. That's a very easy way to begin. The next step could be you could take a very formal approach, which would be 
to look for workshops relating to how to get started with genealogy. Fortunately, because of technology, there are all sorts of groups on Facebook, on Twitter, on everything relating to genealogy. You could go on YouTube and find probably thousands of videos on how to get started with genealogy. You could search for some historical societies or genealogy groups. And I think the most important thing to remember, since a lot of us are documenting our lives with technology, and this is something that the younger generations are going to be privileged in doing, which is just like you can see people on social media who are you know, taking pictures of, you know, what I wore today or whatever. You know, this is sort of like the, the first couple of generations who are able to fully document their process. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to like 10 or 20 years from now when you start to see this body of work emerging. One thing that I would like to encourage other researchers or those who are beginning is to document your process. You may want to sit down and write out your goals, outline some of the questions that you want to have answered and hold on to that as you continue to conduct research. And from time to time, go back and revisit those goals and those questions. And that will serve for you sort of as a, a documentation of how you have grown and developed. You will find that your definition of self changes as you find out more about your ancestry, about your family. For example, with me, it helped me to feel more comfortable to make me feel as if I belong to the larger narrative. And as you continue with this, it helps you to feel more comfortable, I think, in your skin and who you are and where you're coming from. And especially it helps to make you understand that you do belong to whatever it is that we are at this time in history. Once you get started, you'll be guided along the way on your own unique path to getting there. There's no one perfect way. There's no one right way. There's no one wrong way to conduct genealogy. That was fantastic. And thank you so, so much, Miss You're welcome. Hollis, Lucretia Gentry. Um, <laughs> I, I just remember at the beginning, you were sharing about your mother and her amazing storytelling skills. And I think that has passed down to you because well, thank you. this has been the um, probably been the easiest interview I've ever had to do. Just the amazing stories and wisdom and knowledge that you shared. So thank you thank so you. much. I'm just thinking in terms of where I was in my little mind when I first started. And I could never have imagined being in a, in a position like right now. I'm just so thankful that I had the opportunity to participate in this. And it also serves uh, as a way of uh, reminding myself of how far I've come. And I hope that I serve as an example and a source of inspiration for others to start on this process. If there are any very young listeners who are wondering if they can do it and get started, I think I serve as an example of someone who, you know, had a goal early in life and pursued it and succeeded. I realized the dreams that I had when I was younger.
so much for listening. And if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, please follow us on Instagram at Divided Families Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the music and see you next time.